Last week I told the story of the legend of the circle maker, how a man named Honey drew a circle in the sand and prayed for rain in the midst of a devastating drought. Honey said that he wouldn't leave the circle until God had mercy on his children and sent rain. Before the first raindrop fell, you have to think that Honey probably felt a little bit foolish. Standing inside a circle demanding rain is a risky proposition, right? Vowing that you won't leave the circle until it rains is even riskier. Honey didn't draw a semicircle. He drew a complete circle. There was no escape clause. There was no expiration date. Honey backed himself into a circle, and the only way out was a miracle. Drawing prayer circles often looks like an exercise in foolishness. But that's faith. Faith is the willingness to look foolishness at times. Noah looked foolish building a boat in the middle of a desert. The Israelite army looked foolish marching around Jericho. A shepherd boy named David looked foolish charging a giant with nothing but a slingshot and some stones. The wise men looked foolish tracking a star to Timbuktu. Peter looked foolish getting out of the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus looked foolish wearing a crown of thorns. But the results speak for themselves, right? Noah was saved from the flood. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. David defeated Goliath. The wise men discovered the Messiah. Peter walked on water. And Jesus was crowned the King of Kings. Foolishness is a feeling that Moses was very familiar with. He had to have felt foolish going before Pharaoh and demanding that Pharaoh let God's people go. He probably felt foolish raising his staff over the Red Sea. And that he most certainly felt foolish promising meat for the entire nation of Israel in the middle of the wilderness. But it was his willingness to look foolish that, ex that resulted in epic miracles, right? The exodus of Israel out of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and the quail miracle that we read about today. Drawing prayer circles often feels foolish, and the bigger the circle you draw, the more foolish you'll feel. But if you aren't willing to step out of the boat, you'll never walk on water. If you aren't willing to circle the city, the walls will never fall. And if you aren't willing to follow the star, you'll miss out on the greatest adventure of your life. In order to experience the miracle, you have to take a risk. And one of the most difficult types of risks to take is a risk of reputation. Honey already had the reputation of a rainmaker, but he was willing to risk his reputation by praying for rain one more time in the midst of that devastating drought. Honey took the risk, and the rest is history. The greatest chapters of history always begin with risk. And the same is true with the chapters of your life. If you're unwilling to risk your reputation, you'll never build the boat like Noah or get out of the boat like Peter. You can't build God's reputation if you aren't willing to risk yours. There comes a moment when you need to make the call or make the move. Circle makers are risk takers. And Moses had learned this lesson well. If you don't take the risk, you forfeit the miracle. In his book, The Irresistible Revolution, activist Shane Claiborne wrote, One of the reasons we don't see many miracles in industrialized countries is that we don't really need miracles. When we get sick, we go to the hospital. When we get hungry, we go to the store. I have come to believe that when we live in a way that requires miracles, we will start to see them. 
One of my goals is to live in a way that invites and expects the miraculous. And most of the miracles I've seen have been in those all-too-few moments when I stepped out into a space of utter reliance on God. I want more of that. Don't we all? The book of James says, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. When we're praying, when we're asking God to intervene in the matters of our lives, we should make sure that we're putting our faith in God alone and not in the powers of this world. When we pray to God but put our trust in the world, our prayers are little more than a ritualistic formality because we aren't really stepping out in faith. We're just asking for things that we already know we can get naturally. After 400 years of slavery, God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. But it's much harder getting the Egypt out of the Israelites than getting the Israelites out of Egypt. Despite the memories of slavery and the miracles of deliverance, the Israelites want to go back to Egypt. So the Israelites were complaining. I know, shocking, right? Instead of manna, they want meat. The Israelites are longingly remembering the free fish that they ate in Egypt. And forget the little fact that the fish was free because they weren't. But remember, the Israelites weren't just slaves. They had been victims of genocide. And they're complaining about missing the meat that had been on the menu. And isn't it just a little ironic that the Israelites are complaining about one miracle, the manna, while asking for another one? Their capacity for complaining was simply astounding. And we scoff at the Israelites for grumbling about a meal of manna that was miraculously delivered to their doorsteps every day. But don't we do the same thing? There are miracles around us all the time, yet it's so easy to find something to complain about in the midst of those miracles. The simple act of reading involves millions of impulses firing across billions of synapses. While you're reading, your heart goes about its business circulating five quarts of blood through a hundred thousand miles of veins, arteries, and capillaries. And it's amazing that you can even concentrate right now, given the fact that you're on a planet that's spinning 67,000 miles an hour through space while spinning around its axis at 1,000 miles an hour. But we take those miracles, those miracles that happen every day, day in and day out, we take those for granted. Despite their incessant complaining, God patiently responds to their food tantrum with one of the most unfathomable promises in Scripture. He doesn't just promise a one-course meal of meat. God promises meat for a month. He's going to give them so much meat that he promises they'll be sick of it by the time they're done. Now, let me clarify. This is less an answer to prayer and more God showing his mighty power in the midst of the Israelites complaining. It's not that the Israelites were praying big. It's that we know that we can pray big because of the mighty way God worked in the midst of of the fits that they were throwing. But when God promises a month worth of meat, Moses can hardly believe it. He says, there are 600,000 foot soldiers here with me, and yet you say, I'll give them meat for a whole month? Even if we butchered all our flocks and herds, would that satisfy them? Even if we caught all the fish in the sea, would that be enough? 
See, Moses is doing the math in his head and it doesn't add up, not even close. He's trying to think of any conceivable way that God can deliver on this promise and he can't think of a single scenario. He doesn't see how God can fulfill his impossible promise for a single day, let alone for a whole month. Have you ever been there? God wants you to take the job that pays less, but it doesn't add up. You know God wants you to go on the mission trip, but it doesn't add up. You know God wants you to get married or go to school or uh, adopt a child, but it doesn't add up. What's the step of faith that you need to take in pursuing your big prayer? The Israelites were parked in the wilderness of Paran, a region about 50 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea and about 50 miles southwest of the Dead Sea. And the significance of that is this. Quail tend to live by water and they don't fly long distances. If it weren't for a supernatural west wind, they never would have made it that far inland. So this is a meteorological miracle. And it's not just a miraculous west wind. The clouds burst and it's basically raining quail from the sky. It says that uh, quail fell a day's walk in every direction. And based on the Hebrew system of measurement, a day's walk is approximately 15 miles in every direction. So if you square the radius and multiply by pi, we're talking about an area that was almost 700 square miles. To put that in per into perspective, Lexington, Kentucky is about 285 square miles. So the quail storm covered an area that's two and a half times the size of Lexington. And it covered it three feet deep. That's a lot of quail. But can you imagine seeing that many birds fly into the camp? It was like a bird blizzard. Quail Mageddon. The clouds of birds so massive it seemed like a solar eclipse. For the rest of their lives, I bet when eyewitnesses closed their eyes to sleep, they didn't count sheep, they counted quail. And once the quail stopped falling, the Israelites started gathering. Each Israelite gathered no less than 50 bushels of quail. 50 bushels multiplied by 600,000 men equals 300 million bushels at a minimum. Assuming that the quail were of average size, it rained somewhere in the neighborhood of 105 million quail. You heard that right, 105 million quail. God doesn't just provide in dramatic fashion, he provides in dramatic proportion. Of course, Moses could have never anticipated this. It was unpredictable and unprecedented, but Moses had the guts to circle the promise anyway. And when you circle the promise, you never know how God is going to provide. It's always cloudy with a chance of quail. Is there a promise that you need to circle in your life? Maybe you need to circle a promise for your marriage or for your children. Maybe you need to circle a promise for this stage of life that you're in right now. Maybe you need to circle a promise for a fear you're facing or for a dream that you're pursuing. In his book entitled, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, John Ortberg tells the story of the time that he went on a hot air balloon ride with his wife. And he said he always assumed that the baskets on hot air balloons, you know, were about chest high. But once they got into the balloon, he realized that the basket only came up to about their knees. 
and he was thinking how one good lurch would throw them over the edge of the basket, plummeting to the ground. So in order to convince himself that he was safe, he began talking to the kid who was flying the balloon, hoping to reassure himself that they were in good hands. And when he asked their pilot how he had gotten started flying balloons, the guy began his response with, See, dude, it's like this. Turns out that the guy spent most of his time surfing, didn't have any other jobs or aspirations. But the most chilling part was when he explained why he started flying balloons. Turns out one night he had been driving drunk with his brother in the car, and his brother was seriously injured in the crash. And since his brother couldn't get around very well, watching hot air balloons gave him something to do. Then the pilot <laughs> casually mentioned on top of this that this was the first time he had ever flown this particular model of balloon, and the descent might get a little choppy because he wasn't quite sure how to land it. So to summarize, they were a thousand feet up in the air with an unemployed surfer who started flying hot air balloons because he got drunk, crashed a pickup, injured his brother, and had never been in that kind of balloon before and didn't know how to bring it down. Unlike Ortberg, we can have confidence in the one who's calling us to greater heights of prayer. We can have confidence in the one who's calling us to take some risky steps of faith. Before the quail storm appeared on the Doppler, God asked Moses a question. And it's more than a question, it's the question. Your answer to this, to the question, will determine the size of your prayer circles. God says, has my arm lost its power? Other translations say it this way. Is there any limit to my power? The obvious answer is no, right? God's omnipotent, which means by definition that there's nothing that God can't do. Yet many of us pray and live our lives as if our problems are bigger than God. So let me remind you of this high-octane truth that should fuel your faith. God is infinitely bigger than your biggest problem and infinitely bigger than your biggest dream. And while we're on the topic, his grace is infinitely bigger than your biggest sin. Modern mystic A.W. Tozer believed that a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils, but a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. If that's true, and I believe it is, then your biggest problem isn't the impending divorce or the failing business or the doctor's diagnosis. Now, please understand, I'm not making light of your relational or financial or health issues. I certainly don't want to minimize the overwhelming problems that you might be facing. But in order to regain a godly perspective on your problems, you have to answer this question. Are your problems bigger than God? Or is God bigger than your problems? Our biggest problem is a small view of God. That can cause all lesser evils, and a high view of God is the solution to a plethora of problems. Is there any limit to my power? Have you answered the question? There are only two answers, yes or no. Until you come to the conviction that God is bigger than your problems, that God's grace and power know no limits, you'll make small prayer circles. 
But once you embrace the omnipotence of God, you'll draw ever-enlarging circles around your God-given, God-sized dreams. How big is your God? Is he big enough to heal your marriage? Is he big enough to heal your relationship with your child? Is he bigger than the positive MRI results or the negative evaluation? Is he bigger than your secret sin? Is he bigger than your secret dream? Moses was perplexed by the promise that God had given him. How could God possibly provide meat for a month? It didn't add up. But at that critical juncture, Moses had to decide whether or not to circle the promise when God posed the question, is there any limit to my power? The size of our prayers depends on the size of our God. And if God knows no limits, neither should our prayers. God exists outside of the four space-time dimensions that he created. And we should pray that way. Reminds me of the story of a man who was sizing God up and he, he asked God, God, how long is a million years to you? And God responded, well, a million years is like a second. And the man said, God, how much is a million dollars to you? And God said, a million dollars is like a penny. And the man smiled and said, hey, God, could you spare a penny? And God said, sure, just wait a second. With God, there's no bigger, small, easier, difficult, possible, or impossible. And that's difficult to comprehend because all we've ever known are these four dimensions that we're born into. But God is outside of the supernatural laws that he created, and he's not subject to them. He has no beginning and no end. To the infinite, all finites are equal. Even our hardest prayers are easy for the omnipotent one to answer because there's no degree of difficulty. If you're like me, you tend to use bigger words when you're praying for bigger requests. You pull out your best vocabulary words for your biggest prayers, as if God's answer depends on the correct combination of the correct words. Trust me, it doesn't matter how long or how loud or what words you use when you pray. It comes down to your answer to the question. Is there any limit to my power? When God gives a vision, he makes provision. We just need the courage to step out in faith when God is calling us to get out of the boat. Otherwise, we'll forfeit the miracle. We have to believe that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that he can send a west wind that brings 105 million quail into the middle of the camp. We need to do our part, and our part is taking a step of faith and pursuing the dreams that God has put in our hearts. In his book, Prayer for Beginners, theologian Peter Kreeft says that faith is the one prerequisite for prayer. He writes, faith is not some state of mind we work up in ourselves. Faith is simply believing God's promises. Faith is not in us so much as it is between us and God. It's our response to God's initiative. Faith isn't a feeling, it's knowing. The object of faith is the divine fact that God is for us. Some would argue that the opposite is true, that you can't have faith in facts, right? That if you know something to be true, then it's not faith. 
But throughout scripture, we see people put their faith in God and take risky steps of faith. And they don't do this out of blind faith. They do this because they, at least to some extent, know the God in whom they are placing their faith. Unlike John Ortberg's hot air balloon story, when we place our faith in God, it's not blind faith in someone in whom we have no confidence. We may not always feel our faith, but we can always know the one in whom we have faith. There's an old Chinese parable that says, faith, fact, and feeling were walking along the top of the wall. And as long as faith kept its eyes on fact, the three all made steady progress. But if faith turned around to focus on feeling, faith fell off the wall and feeling fell with him. Well, fact went on. Faith is not based on our feelings, but rather on what we know about God. We know that God has made us promises, and we know that he wants to deliver on those promises. If we focus on our feelings, a step of faith might feel too risky. If we focus on feelings, we may fall off the wall and never take the necessary steps of faith. But if we keep our eyes on the fact of God's faithfulness, we will be able to take those steps of faith. So what step of faith do you need to take? What decision do you need to make? On what promise do you need to put down a stake? God is asking you today, is there any limit? to my power. Let's pray. Lord God, you spoke into the darkness and chaos and there was light. You imagined this earth and its complexity and beauty and you called it into being. You created humanity in your own image and gave us a home to live in. We believe you can do miracles. Lord, you walked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fiery furnace. You shut the mouths of hungry lions and kept Daniel safe until morning. You gave Hannah a family when she despaired of ever having a child. We believe you can do miracles. Lord God, you healed a woman from 12 years of bleeding and rejection. You calmed a storm and your disciples with words of quiet authority. You transformed a boy's picnic into a meal for a multitude with plenty left over. We believe you can do miracles. Lord God, you called Lazarus from the tomb and restored him to life. You walked past the mourners at Jairus' house and gave his daughter back to him. And you suffered a horrendous crucifixion in order to defeat sin and death and give us life. We believe you can do miracles. And yet, Lord, we don't see miracles happening around us. Our doubt is mixed with our faith. Our trust is accompanied by so many questions. We acknowledge the mystery of prayer and faith and the ways in which they're connected. We acknowledge that you often do things differently than the way we would do them. We long to know you better, to understand your ways. And we believe you can do miracles. May we pray big prayers that are honoring to you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.